Today, the men's event, and we had a leadership dinner last night, and it's uh, it's a blessing to be able to have a brother David and his wife Glenda. Where are they? Somewhere over here. Somewhere, Glenda and Eric. Uh, God bless you guys for being with us, David. And we've had a we have a, a great day, and looking forward to David Sharon ministering the word to us today. And let me just say this to you at the end of the service. I don't know any easy way to say this, and and uh, but we're going to receive a love offering. There should be some uh, offering envelopes in one of the pews somewhere around you, and ask that you would you would give this. The love offering will go to support uh, David and Glenda Eric's ministry, and so I pray that you give generously uh, for those brothers like this who live by faith. Okay, so. Uh, and Brother David, thank you for being with us, brother. God bless you, man. Does it appear to you that I am right in the middle of the platform? <laughs> Does it? That's very important to me because I would be grieved above measure if this congregation were to perceive me being to the left of center. If I can't be on the right, then I at least want to be right in the middle. How about you? Would you turn, please, to the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 1. In 1925, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted its first official confessional statement. You are familiar with it. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message. The statement in the 1925 uh, version on man says that man receives by nature from his father Adam a nature that is corrupt and inclined toward evil and he is condemned and when he reaches the point of moral accountability he sins personally against God. In 1963 they turned that statement 180 degrees the 1963 version says that man receives a nature that is corrupt and is inclined toward evil. And when he reaches the point of moral accountability and sins, he is condemned. Do you see the nuance there? One of the statements the 1925 statement has man condemned already in Adam. The latter version, the current version, has him condemned only after he has reached the point of moral accountability and sins against God. Who would have ever guessed that Baptist would have changed their minds about something. <laughs> what do you think? How shall we find an answer 
to such a question as this. Shall we assemble a committee and have them study it further? Or shall we just turn to a passage of Scripture, start at the top and work our way down through it, and let the Bible say what it says. Would you be willing to do that? All right, let's read chapter 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our manner of life in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, I saw you enjoying that song. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together by Christ. Hallelujah. Now, our passage in the first three verses gives us a five-fold explanation about human depravity. Number one, it says that we are dead spiritually and cannot activate ourselves. Look at it. You Ephesian saints, God made you alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins. To be dead in trespasses and sins means to be alienated, separated, estranged from spiritual life from God. Now, we don't like to think about it. We fear being judgmental. But are you aware that while Southern Baptists number 16 million members, less than half of those will even bother to attend worship today? If Ed McMahon were resurrected from the dead, walked down the aisles of the churches and announced that they had won the sweepstakes, we wouldn't know where to begin to find four million Southern Baptists. Literally, one out of four Baptists could not be found if our lives depended on it. Now, I don't have as much physical uh, vitality as you. I don't run like I did on the high school football team. But old David ain't dead yet. 
And I don't want some Jake-legged preacher saying the benediction at my graveside until I've gone the last mile of the way. Check me for vital signs. <laughs> now, beloved, you might not be able to run as quickly the spiritual race. You might not be able to climb as high on the spiritual ladder. But if you have been made alive, if you have been quickened, if you have been born again, you will never again be dead spiritually. There will be some vital signs. You'll have some spiritual appetite and ambition. Uh, you will never be dead again. Now, some of my friends argue with me at this point. They say, David, these are metaphors in Ephesians 2, and you should not press a metaphor too far. Well, that's generally good advice, but it hardly seems to me to be a side issue here. And they would use illustrations like this. You can cut a snake's head off, sever it from the body, but you must still be careful because even that severed head has the residual capability to bite you and inflict a mortal wound. Are there any country boys in this room? You know that to be true, don't you? And oh my, that illustration bothered me. It, it uh, caused me to question my theology until one day it dawned on me, hey, you can cut a snake's head off at the tail. <laughs> you can cut a snake's head off at the tail, and how much residual capability he'll have to bite you is in direct correlation to how far back you cut the head off. <laughs> now, you let me cut his head off, and I'll cut it off up around his ears. <laughs> and he won't have any capability left to strike you. And beloved, if we will allow the Bible to cut off man's moral and spiritual abilities where it cuts them off, you'll discover that man is morally inept and condemned before God. Do you see that in the text? You have been made alive, though you once were dead spiritually. Now here's item number two. He tells us that men are defiled morally and cannot rehabilitate themselves. Look at verse two. Uh, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world. The course of the world means the spirit of the age. And in every generation, the spirit of the age is in diametric opposition to God's standards 
of morality and righteousness. I grew up in a home, in a community, in a church, in a school, in a time that exercised some moral restraint on my activities. What about you? My mom only stood five feet, two inches, yet she was as broad as tall. And you could not convince her that she could not legislate morality. No. In fact, she not only legislated morality, she enforced it. She'd have frailed the daylights out of me if she had known I even thought some of the stuff that I thought about. My pastor, Brother Arnold Knight, would come over to our house. My mom was a single mom. She had four children. The pastor would never come inside our home. He'd visit out on the front porch. And before he'd leave, he'd get around to asking a question like this. Miss Bertha, is David behaving himself? My soul. I was under the impression that if my mom had nodded in the negative, that the pastor would have taken his belt off and laid it to the seat of my britches. I revered the pastor. My high school football coach wouldn't allow you to play on the team if you smoked cigarettes. If you were caught in the vicinity of a beer can, you were off the team. And the local school board applauded him for his philosophy. And to the best of my recollection, the American Civil Liberties Union, which is neither American nor civil, <laughs> whose interest lies not in liberty but in licentiousness, they never brought a case against our school board. I'm glad I grew up in a time like that. Pardon me if I seem to be out of date with the spirit of the age. Do you know what happens when you allow children to grow up and do what comes naturally? Do you know what happens when they let it all hang out? When they go with the flow? I'll tell you what happens. It's what we're seeing every day on television. It's the drugs. It's the sex. It's the immorality. It's the ungodliness. And you and I were right there with them. Our nature was inclined toward the exact same stuff. Hallelujah. We've been redeemed. We've been changed. Do you know the only difference between you and a drug addict on the streets in Los Angeles living under a bridge? It's the grace of God. Number three, not only are you defiled morally, you are dominated satanically and cannot liberate yourself. Look at verse 2 again, the last half of the verse. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Who is this 
prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience. I'll tell you who it is. It's the evil one. It is Satan. It's the devil. Here he says, prior to your conversion, you were under the influence and the domination of the evil one. Did anyone in this room ever try to give up all of your sins before your conversion? Were you successful with that? Did any of you ever make a deal with the Lord? Did you ever say, Lord, if you'll just do this one thing for me, I promise you I'll straighten up and do right. I made a promise like that once. I was 10 years old. It was in the springtime. I'd gone over to Ben Clark's Pond after school, and I noticed over the way a big swirl. And uh, I noticed it again, and I made my way over there. And I stood still for a while, and I saw two of the biggest bass I'd ever seen in my life. I fished and I fished, but they wouldn't bite. I was so excited when I got home, I convinced my mom if I could get off the bus at Doyle Mark's store and purchase one of those plastic fishing worms with three hooks and those beads and the spinner, I could catch one of the biggest bass in the country. And I did so. I tied that worm onto my 20-pound test line and my cane pole, and I went across the pasture to Ben Clark's pond. And when I neared the pond, I got really spiritual about it. And I commenced to pray. And I said, Lord, if you'll let me catch one of these bass today, I promise you I'll never cuss again. <laughs> I was as serious as I could be. I went to that same spot. I stood really still for a while. And in a moment, one of those bass came right up near the edge in shallow water. I flipped that worm out past him and drug it right under his nose, but he wouldn't bite. Finally, it dawned on me, this is not working. I'm going to change my strategy. I thought maybe I can just hook him and catch him. I got the worm lined up coming right over his uh, nose, and when it got really close, I gave it a big jerk, and with all of my strength, I brought him right up out of the water and right out on the bank behind me. I went back there and fell on him, gathered him up. I took the hooks out and went over to the store to get him weighed. And guess what? He weighed three pounds. <laughs> That's by far the biggest fish I'd ever seen. Now I wonder... Are any of you naive enough to think that that red-headed, freckle-faced country kid quit cussing? <laughs> but I tried. I tried really hard. But it didn't last very long. In fact, it was on a Sunday afternoon at Copeland Hills Barn. Bill Hill, Grant, and Sherwin Kelly Fulton Lofton, David Clark, and myself had gathered up at the appointed time to have a corn cob war. 
That's what country kids used to do in Mississippi. Uh, those of us who were more astute at the game would, during the week, take the larger corn cobs, break them in two, and put them in a barrel of water <laughs> so that they would soak up the water. They'd be heavier, and you could fling them with more velocity and accuracy. And when your enemy peeked out around the corner of the barn or from above, above a bale of hay, you'd let him have it. And we had had one of those notorious wars. And we were sitting in the loft, nursing our wounds and making our boast. And those boys began to use some bad language. And before I knew it, I had gathered, I had uh, joined in with them. Now you might be thinking, David, that's got to be the most trite, silly illustration I've ever heard in church. But it really doesn't matter whether you're a 10-year-old country kid trying to quit cussing or whether you're a 40-year-old man who on Friday afternoon when you get paid, you know you ought to go home and pay the bills and fellowship with your family, spend time with your kids. But you have to drive by the tavern and you tell yourself, I'm not going to stop in there today. Nothing good ever comes from this. But as you get closer, it seems you're magnetically drawn and you say, I'll just stop and have a couple of drinks and then I'm going on home. But midnight finds you there in a drunken stupor and it happens over and over again. Listen now. Man in his natural state is dead spiritually, defiled morally, and he's influenced, dominated satanically. But there's another item here. Are y'all doing okay so far? Any of you need anything? I'll send Brother Jason Jordan to get it for you. Look at the fourth item. Men are dead spiritually, defiled morally, dominated satanically. Now, they are debilitated volitionally and cannot elevate themselves. Look at verse 3. Among whom also we all had our manner of life in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now this statement, and of the mind, refers to the higher faculties of the human soul, the intellect, the emotions, and the will. And here he says that even your intellect and your emotions and your wills are influenced by the other aspects of your nature. Now, don't let some preacher come to town and tell you that you don't have a will. That's not the case. You have a will. You are a moral agent, and you make decisions every day. Here's how it works. You receive stimuli into your intellect, and your emotions are moved 
up or down by that, and you assimilate all of that through your intellect and your emotions, and with your will, you come to your decisions. You have a will. I just want to caution you by telling you, don't put too much confidence in your own willpower. Don't do that. This may not be the best illustration, but did you ever go on a diet? <laughs> did you ever get started with an exercise program? Do you suppose then that you would have the willpower to turn from your sins, give up your iniquity, and turn to the Lord on your own? Don't trust your own willpower. Now, number five. Men are damned eternally and cannot exonerate themselves. Look at the last half of verse 3. And were by nature the children of wrath. This statement, the wrath of God, has in mind something like a tomato. Have you ever seen a tomato growing in the early stages? The outer skin is thick. But as the meat and the juice exert pressure on the skin, as it ripens, the skin gets thinner and tighter. Have you ever seen a tomato left on the vine after it reached its peak of ripeness but wasn't harvested? Ere long, the pressure from the inside becomes so great that the skin will burst. It will have to give vent to the pressure on the inside. Are you aware that in the great heart of God, there is a swelling, growing, hot displeasure and fierce indignation toward your sin and the long sufferance and the forbearance of our God is what keeps the dam or the skin from bursting, from giving way to the awful fierceness of God's wrath against sin. You and I were by nature the children, the objects of God's displeasure and wrath. Are you all seeing that in the text? Are you looking at it? Now we are confronted with a theological question. What does this mean? We were by nature the children of wrath. This phrase by nature means by natural generation. We were the objects of God's wrath by natural generation, that is, by what we received from our parents. You received not only DNA 
and genetics. You also receive a spirit that's dead spiritually, defiled morally, etc., and damned eternally. You were by nature a child of wrath. Now, I'm glad God has made us male and female, aren't you? I remember the first time I saw my wife, Glenda Faye. Her father had come to our church in view of a call. Now, I don't remember much about his sermon that morning. In fact, I don't remember a thing about his sermon. But I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to lobby to get this brother called because I had been attracted to his 17-year-old daughter, Glenda Faye. And they came, and the second week they were there, I got my nerve up, and I asked her for a date, and I have been happily and enthusiastically dating her ever since. She's been my bride of 53 years. I'm glad God made us male and female. But are you aware we're living in a culture that doesn't even know what gender they are. Have y'all heard that? <laughs> Is that crazy or not? I've got, here's my advice to them. Go home, go in the bathroom, <laughs> lock the door, put a piece of tape over the keyhole, take all of your clothes off, You just don't expect the preacher to say that. <laughs> Dear Lord, but I'm trying to help you. Get in front of a full-length mirror. Do a pirouette to the right. Do a pirouette to the left. Check things out. And that'll help you. That'll help you to decide whether you're a male or a female. <laughs> and if that doesn't do it for you, then I advise you get down to your family doctor and tell him what your issue is so he can help you get some professional help. <laughs> now, do you know what I do for Glenda for our anniversary this last September I took her out to Pie Town, New Mexico. We parked the coach 10 miles from an electric light, went two miles further on the Ranger, and I let her sit in the blind with me on the water hole while I waited for a bull elk to come by. <laughs> Nothing is too good for her. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to elevate the way men treat their wives. Now here's a question for you. Am I addressing a heterosexual crowd? By that I mean, do you have a natural interest in and inclination toward the opposite sex? Hallelujah. When did that start? Did that occur prior to your 
marriage, your honeymoon, or subsequent to it. Well, beloved, that's the reason I got married. I had this natural interest in and inclination to my wife, Brenda Faye. Here's what the Bible is saying. Now look at it again. You're dead spiritually, defiled morally, dominated satanically, debilitated volitionally, and were by nature, by natural generation, the children of wrath. But wouldn't you hate to close a church service on a note like that? Let's don't close there. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, if I had the time to expound this passage, I would have told you three things. Uh, in fact, Here's what I would have told you if I'd have had the time. That'll, you'll get that in a minute, don't worry. <laughs> a little slow, cl slower class here than I thought. <laughs> I would tell you three things. I'd tell you who loved us. God did. I'd tell you when he loved us, when we were dead in sins. I tell you what he did because he loved us. He quickened us. He made us alive. I shall only speak of when he loved us. When you were dead spiritually, God loved you then. God quickened you. Now, I've learned that it's easier for me to get along with people that love me, that are kind and gracious and generous and complimentary. Somebody comes by and pats me on the shoulder and says, Brother David, that's a great sermon today. I just sigh and think to myself, that old boy knows good preaching when he hears it. <laughs> Somebody comes by and says, Preacher, where'd you get that tie? Now, that didn't come from Uncle Dudley's bargain basement. That's a fine tie. I just think to myself, I am in the presence of a gentleman who has good taste in menswear. I can get along with folks like that, can't you? But I have to work at it and pray about it to get along with people that don't love me. And I'm vain enough to wonder why in this world would anyone not love me? Now, I'm going to repeat this. I don't subscribe to this, but it's something I heard and I thought you might be interested. The fellow said, all women are perfect angels. And he gave three reasons. Number one, they're always up in the air. Number two, they never have an earthly thing to wear. And number three, they're always harping. 
Now, I don't believe that, and I'd never say that. But I know this. You let one of these old sisters catch me at just the right time. Maybe the Arkansas Razorbacks lost at the last second against Ole Miss because the referee's C&I dog died. <laughs> I mean, everybody in the free world saw it but him. And I'm out of sorts. And here she comes, all up in the air, wanting to read me the riot act. Well, if she's not careful, she might bite off more than she can chew. I might tell her a thing or two. Aren't you glad you're not having to depend on me to love you better? Aren't you glad that God's not like either one of us? Aren't you glad God didn't wait till you who were dead spiritually had somehow bestirred yourself? Aren't you glad God didn't wait till you who were defiled morally had somehow rehabilitated yourself? Aren't you glad God didn't wait till you had mustered enough strength to throw off Satan's influence? Aren't you glad God didn't wait until you had exonerated yourself before a holy God? No, beloved, the grace of God is seen in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And today, any man or woman or teenager or child who will acknowledge their sin, bend their knee and bow their hearts before the Lord, can trust the Lord God to do what only he can do, and that is to make you alive spiritually, to change your heart, to save your soul. This morning it is my grand privilege to invite you to come to Jesus. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, would you be pleased to touch the hearts of any in this room who are without the Savior? Would you quicken them Make them alive. Give them a spirit that is sensitive to the things of the Lord. Grant them faith and repentance with godly sorrow. In Jesus' name, amen.